in Somerville anyway. We're completely broke, and our grandfather left us this creepy old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Your father wasn't much of a homemaker. He could hardly keep the power on. You're saying he left us nothing? Well, I wouldn't say nothing. You went with the station wagon? It's the only one that had an engine. Somehow, a town with no fault lines is shaking on a daily basis. Maybe it's the apocalypse. Egon came out here for a reason. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? You experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? Go, go, go! Ghostbusters, we're ready to believe you! We're closed. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I am joined by my terrifying co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. Well, you say that hopefully in jest, but actually I am rather terrifying today because I've come down with quite the stinking cold, so there's a bit of ectoplasm kind of flying around right now, so it's probably good that we're doing this remotely, but... The COVID tests have come back negative, so I'm taking that as a win. Well, are you sure that you're, it's not some sort of um, demonic possession? I mean, I don't know if you remember, but for, just before we, we started this, you kept on asking if I was the keymaster. Yes, oh, I just asked that anyway, just on the off chance. <laughs> One day my boat will come in. <laughs> well, that was probably a, a none too subtle clue that today we're going to be talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife, the fourth film in the Ghostbusters franchise and the third in the as it, yeah the third in the continuity of the original two films. I, I looked this up and apparently the second film is still canon. Well, there's no reason that it shouldn't be canon, I don't think, right? Oh yeah, it's just the fact that nobody explicitly references. They keep on talking about the, like the great cross rip of the original film of like 1984, and yet nobody mentions that time when the fucking Statue of Liberty came to life. Yes, yeah, that's a very good point. Sorry, I'm just, yes, I think my cold is getting into my head because, of course, we are now in the era of the first one existed, but all the sequels were not going to count. This is a rare occasion where the sequel also counts. But you're right, yeah, that's the thing, is that no one talks about when the Statue of Liberty got up and started walking around Manhattan Island, which you think people would remember. But shall I do the plot synopsis and then we can dive into what we thought? Yeah, let's go for it. So again, this is from the IMDb. When a single mom and her two kids arrive in a small town, they begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. Well, actually, that's yeah. a, it's a rare occasion where the IMDb kind of got it on the head. Yeah, that's the story. So the single mom is played by Carrie Coon, who people would know from The Leftovers if they watch quality telly, because The Leftovers is one of the best things to have been on TV in the last 10 years or ever. <laughs> here, here. And her kids, so there's Trevor, played by Finn Wolfhard, who people would know from Stranger Things, and he was in the It films, right? Yes. Um, and the daughter, Phoebe, is played by McKenna Grace, and, well, audiences who love their horror would have most recently seen her in Malignant, 
when she plays the younger version of the Annabelle Wallace character. Most of what I've seen her in, she's, she has been playing a younger version of the main character. She's the young Tonya Harding in I, Tonya, and she's the young Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel. She is, that's right. And yeah, again, just to kick something down the road, we need to talk about why that is. And also, we're going to have to do a spoiler section because there are some things that it would be really, really mean of us to spoil. So there is going to be a spoiler section for this. We will flag it very, very heavily. So if you stop listening now, we're not going to talk about the spoilers now, but if you do stop listening now, then there is a mid-credits scene in this movie and also an end credit scene. So it's worth sticking around to the very end of the movie to watch those two. Yes, it kind of really embraces the Marvel aesthetic or the Marvel format with that. Yeah, so what do we think of Ghostbusters Afterlife? Uh, it's, well, essentially just a reanimation of the original film. They've summoned the ghost of the original film and uh, channeled it through a few kids. It's Ghostbusters meets Stranger Things. It is. It is Ghostbusters meets Stranger Things. They've kind of try to do The Force Awakens in terms of we're going to tell a new story but we are going to heavily lean on that original movie that you all love so much and I thought that worked for The Force Awakens because yes it was giving the fans what they wanted but when it's done so wonderfully well it's like well I will happily take that. Yeah this was one of those where it it did revisit the first film in terms of character and story in lots of different ways and there were lots of callbacks but for me, the surprising thing about this film was I just thought it never got out of third gear. It just never really got going. I went in there with a lot of goodwill because a lot of the reviews in this country were really, really positive. There were lots of four-star reviews coming out. For me, it's so airless. It's so reverential. Yeah, I was watching it thinking, I am really on board with this film. I was so up for the film when it started. Because I just thought, okay, right, so the initial reviews from the States were not great, but the reviews that are coming out over here are really, really positive. So good, you know, you know this is going to be good. I'm really up for this. And I was, was working with it the whole way through because I just like the Ghostbusters franchise. And there were some points when it really, really delivered. And there were other points when it was like, it's just not getting going. It's just stuck in third gear and it keeps promising to really really shift into a high gear and then it never does yeah i mean it's there's there's a bit of super eight to it for me it's and, and actually you know we can we, i think we can talk about this without actually without going into spoilers for one thing they just basically reuse the whole of the first film score i mean it's got rob simonson down as the composer but it's all elmer bernstein i couldn't like i know there's original music in there but i can't for the life of me think of any of it so Rob Simonson did Foxcatcher, he did The Way Back, he did The King of Staten Island, he did Love, Simon, so he's done some... Yeah, so he is a composer. <laughs> but I looked at the credit, because I actually kept an eye out for the composer credit, because I just thought it was going to be like the Cape Fear credit, where it's Elmer Bernstein reworking Bernard Herrmann's original score or something like that. I really thought it was going to credit the Elmer Bernstein score from the original movie, because it's like... That's all I can hear. There were like a few cues where it's like, yeah, this does sound a bit different. But most of it was like, well, you are just reorchestrating the original Ghostbusters score, which is not bad because it's an absolutely amazing score. But really, you're not going to credit Elmer Bernstein in any way in this because he nicked his score. I mean, well, yeah, so. for, me, for me, it was more that like it really took me out of the film. 
you're waiting to see which queue they were going to use at each moment. It's like, oh, okay, they're using the one, for, they're using the uh, the librarian queue from the original film. Uh, da, da, da. It just really took me out of it. Like, even, you know, obviously um, Force Awakens has a lot of the original Star Wars music in there, but it's not so telegraphed. No, and it's also The Force Awakens has a lot of original music in there as well. The Force Awakens soundtrack is absolutely brilliant, and it's not the same as the original Star Wars soundtrack. I mean, it obviously has the theme and stuff, and there's a few other cues in there, but it's a lot of original music. And this didn't have any big theme to compare to the original Ghostbusters. Uh, because, like, you know, not everyone is Elmer Bernstein, right? I mean, he was one of the great composers. But the thing for me is funny, because you said Super 8, and I got a touch of Super 8. But the reason why you get a touch of Super 8, of course, is because, like Ghostbusters Afterlife, Super 8 is a film that is just always looking behind its shoulder at the films that the filmmakers loved as a kid and are basically just trying to Xerox. It's weird, because the original Ghostbusters came out of SNL. It was a Saturday Night Live team, crew. I mean, it's yeah, they all came from like fringe comedy that, that then became very, very big and mainstream. So it had a real anarchic spirit to it. The exactly. original Ghostbusters is an anarchic movie. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of the cast have just come off SNL, or have come off SNL. And yeah, there is, there is that anarchic spirit to it. Whereas this is, Ghostbusters Afterlife is so polished. It is polished. But then I thought that the original Ghostbusters, is it's a very well-made film. And the effects at the time were just absolutely groundbreaking. And I remember seeing that at the cinema in January the 5th, 1985, because it was the day before my birthday. And I was allowed to take a friend to the cinema to go and see it. And I mean, it really was like, this is a movie from America. Because look at how slick and amazing these effects are. I don't know how they're doing some of these effects. But it had that anarchic spirit in terms of uh, the humour, the characters... And the plotting, because it never stops the original film. It just it all it just keeps moving and moving and moving. And yes, you can say, well, you know, the psychology of the characters isn't particularly deep. It's like that's not what it's trying to do. It's trying to be an anarchic comedy about a bunch of guys who catch ghosts. That's what it set out its mission statement to be. This one is directed by Jason Reitman, so Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, it's his son. So Jason Reitman did Juno and Up in the Air and Young Adult, and he tends to make social conscience films, although I think he's actually quite a dishonest filmmaker and how he does it, and his films are very, very conservative. But he says that this one is just another one of his films kind of wrapped up in a Ghostbusters shroud because it's about a single mom and she's been evicted with her kids and they have to go to her dad's house and she had a fractious relationship with her dad. But it's all just plot in the film the fact that you know she's moving into her dad's house is not some big emotional it's just because they need to be in the house for the plot to work and in terms of her relationship with her dad there is a payoff to it as far, you know, as far as there can be but it's not a focal point of the film really there are a couple of scenes where she you know she'll talk about it a bit but it's a weird film this because it's clearly cut down from a longer version Bakeem Woodbine is in this film and he's a big actor he's in this film in quite a pivotal role for a single scene and he plays the town sheriff and it's like well then we're going to see you at the end right when everything kind of goes mad but you never see him again it never comes back it never comes back to him and there are some other big name actors in roles that are like well that should be an extra because they don't do anything and so I just think there's a at least a two and a half hour cut of this that had a lot more in it but you thought wasn't working so therefore you cut it down to just over two hours still 20 minutes longer than the original Ghostbusters and the arc with the Callie character so the Carrie Coon character is called Callie 
her arc with her dad, and it's already been revealed that her dad was one of the original Ghostbusters, and if anyone knows the real-life state right now of the actors, you can guess which one it is. But she has a terribly fractious relationship with her dad, and there has to be some kind of arc and some kind of payoff, but it never, the plot never really lays out enough for that to work. And it seems to be like a film that was, that had a lot of plot in it and a lot of things going on, but it never moved really. It's really odd to watch. It's a film where uh, at one point I, I didn't end up dashing to the loo, but I thought I'd have to. I knew exactly when I would have to go to the loo. <laughs> It's it, it in in terms of like it's a bit it's not it's not the same as it part two but there is a structure to it it's just very predictable in terms of the beats in a way yes but I also think it's one of those where because I kept thinking the film was okay now it's gonna get going now it's gonna get going and then it would just kind of stop again for a bit more plot and it's like I'm finding it hard to read where the second act of this film is and where the mm. it's like and it's really weird because the film's written by Jason Reitman okay fine but yeah I'm not a huge fan of his work. But it's co-written by Gil Kennan, I think his name is. Gil Kennan, his first film was Monster House, which is an animated movie from 2006 about a bunch of kids who have to fight a ghost in a haunted house. And it's just absolutely brilliant. It's one of the great kids' movies. And it's definitely up there with Coraline um, Paranorman as one of the great kids' horror movies. So I thought, well, you've done this. You've done this story of kids fighting ghosts. Because in this version, it's the kids that become the Ghostbusters. And why is this one not working then, when Monster House just works so absolutely beautifully? Well, I think, I think we're going to be talking about that in the spoiler section. I think we know exactly why this film doesn't work. Well, to your point, I think, that you've said already, I think it's because they were just so reverential with it. And it's like, no, yeah, Ghostbusters is not, it's not a piece of fine china. It's the Ecto-1. It's a really sturdy, but kind of slightly beat up, but very, very good looking vehicle that you can slam around corners and it can take a bit of punishment. I think, and this and this may be controversial to people listening to this, I think 2016's version is far more actually, you know, in keeping with the spirit of the original film. Exactly what I was thinking. And why is that? Because, for one thing, it's funny. Yes. The fact that, which is actually quite crucial, because the original is a horror comedy. Mm. And it's got a lot of stuff in there that, you know, is, is played sort of fairly straight. But ultimately, it does need to have humour in it. People need to be saying and doing funny things. And this film's kind of, it's wry. Like, there are some, there are some, a couple of lines that are, you know, quite good. It's got um, Paul Rudd as the, uh, the Sunday school teacher. Sunday school, the uh, summer school teacher. And... Weirdly, for the most part, the film only really worked for me when he was on screen. It's interesting that, okay, let's um, just finish off the Ghostbusters 2016 version because we reviewed, I think that was like episode three or something of of the Robcast back when it was called the Electric Shadows podcast show, just how long ago it was. So we reviewed that and that was, of course, a film that really was one of the first kind of modern examples of real toxic internet fandom just coming out and screaming that you'd ruin this thing that all the fans love by letting girls have a go at it. It was just really awful and nasty. But yeah, but that I just remember thinking, this is really weirdly mean, the way that they have just so attacked this all-female version of Ghostbusters. I watched the 2016 version again a few years later and thought, yeah, it's not great, but it's not bad. It's, it's, a, it's just a good film. It's funny and it also has the SNL spirit to it because, of course, a lot of the actors in that film came out of SNL and it's like, it understands what the Ghostbusters film is. And you can say this film's trying to do something a bit different, but it's like, 
This film is E.T. and Close Encounters and The Goonies and Gremlins and just another big bath in 80s nostalgia. And it's much more about just reclaiming that Spielbergian feel of 80s fantasy movies than it is about continuing the feel of the Ghostbusters franchise. So was there anything about this film that you thought, okay, this is good? I like the cast. I think it's about the best thing that I can say. I, you know, I enjoy watching the cast. I just wish they were given more interesting things to do. I really like the cast. Yeah, I thought the cast was great. I thought that McKenna Grace was just the MVP in this film. And I would much rather have had a film that hadn't got Finn Wolfhard in it as her older brother and was just her and her mate podcast played by, is it Logan Kim? I just thought this film is, is overpopulated and she's by far the most interesting character. And I've seen so many films with her in it, and I did not recognise her at all from any of the films. I saw Malignant a few months ago, and just did not place her at all from that. And she's so great in this film, that I was actually getting Jodie Foster vibes Foster vibes, yeah. I was about to say. And it's like, that's the reason why I think she plays the younger version of the main character in films, because she has such confidence and assuredness and a maturity to her performances that it's like, yeah, she's the perfect person to play the younger version of the main character in I, Tonya, or Captain Marvel. Yeah, she's great. And I thought, well, I've actually seen about six films with you in it, and I did not recognise you because I think you're just a very good actor. And I did think at one point, I thought, this, it just doesn't need a lot of these characters. It should just be much more focused. Like Monster House, you don't really see the adults in it. It's just about the kids. It's just a weirdly, weirdly overwritten film. It's a film that I went in with quite high hopes for. And I think, yeah, as we'll go more into the spoiler section, I just walked out feeling a bit deflated. I walked out feeling, well, we can't talk about that until we get into uh, spoilers, but I walked out feeling something that I'll talk about in spoilers because it might give it away. But it seems, well, actually, no, it doesn't seem mean to uh, to slag off this film because this film should have done a better job of being a film. But there were good moments in it, moments that I really enjoyed. It's in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler. But the first time that the kids take out the Ecto-1 to go ghost hunting and they go through the main town street, yeah, down the high street of this town, that whole sequence was, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. The way that it was shot, camera work in there was just great. The performances were brilliant. The effects were great. And it was just really exciting. And I really thought, because that comes, I think, about halfway through the film. And I thought... This is it. This is it. It's all been built up to this moment. And now it's going to be one of those things that just really, really barrels along from now. Because everyone, because it's all in broad daylight. So everyone's seen this ghost. Now the whole town is going to realise why these weird things and these weird earthquakes have been happening. Because they've got ghosts. Yeah, it's like, let's go. Because this is such a great and exciting sequence. And then after that sequence, it kind of stops and kind of goes back to a bit more plot. And it's like, <laughs> really? We're going to stop again? Hmm. I like the sequence, but it it felt a little bit like in that one. It's like, okay, well, obviously we've given everything a bit of an upgrade. The new kids on the block, and they've got some new tech, and they're doing the thing. And it's like, okay, you know what? Yeah, this is this is this is fun. And then, as you say, it just kind of goes back to nope. We're actually we're doing this. Yeah, that's right. It is one of those things where it's like a bit like the Phantom Menace. It it used the sounds from the original movies a lot to try and get you to like it. So. The proton packs still have that wonderful sound as they boot up. And that particular thing when they fire in the streams, that sound. It's like, yeah, this is all, these are all the sounds of Ghostbusters. And the score is, is the Ghostbusters score. 
But it just seems like you're using these sounds so that we just feel that love we had for the original to make us like your film more. That doesn't work all the time. And I don't think it's working here. Agreed. I think we're on the same page on this one. Uh, One of the opening production credits is Ghost Core Productions, which strongly suggests that they're trying to make this into a series under the Ghost Core banner. Just had a touch of that um, a universal dark universe. And then they did the mummy and they had to can it because the mummy was so bad that it flopped so hard. And it's like, it's interesting that you're trying to start up a ghost core franchise of Ghostbusters movies. Because really, you've got four movies and you are one for four right now. I, I, do you know what? I've got some affection for the second film. I don't know. Is that a bit... I had as well, and I watched it. I got the 4K box set, so that's when I rewatched the films a few years ago. And the second film has some good stuff in it, but it is I, it is not a good film. It, it's a bit like this one. It's like there's a lot of plot. It's like, why is there a baby in it? Why is Bill Murray more involved with a baby than he is with ghosts? Hmm. Some of the stuff in it is quite good, but it seems like an oddly cosy film. And also seems like a film that they're doing because it's just weird that there wasn't a sequel to Ghostbusters. Because it came five years later, didn't it? It was like, wow, there's, there's ever going to be like another Ghostbusters film? So shall we get into spoilers now? Yes, let's. And what shall we use as a spoiler sting bumper? Well, I guess just the start of There's Something Strange in the Neighbourhood, the start of the... Uh... Of the song? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So you're going to hear that now. Anything after that, we are going to talk about spoilers. So please go and see it beforehand, because there are some things in here that I'm very glad I didn't know was going to happen before they happened. So yeah, it's worth seeing the film before you listen to the spoiler section. And thanks if you've listened this far and come back if you've not seen it. And we're now in spoilers. So, yeah, I thought the... A decision to just have Gozer be the... <laughs> the villain again. And basically replay the end of the lo- of the first movie. But to replay it in a farm rather than in the middle of New York, where the stakes seemed far less. Lower, yeah. It was like, well, that's interesting. I mean, the thing that's really, really keeping me in this movie is that it's Olivia Wilde is playing Gozer. And, you know... In the original Ghostbusters, you've got Lewis played by Rick Moranis, and he's obsessed with the Dana character played by Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, in, essentially in this, they just swap in Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd. They do, but I am the Rick Moranis to Olivia Wilde. I would just be following her around like a little dog. So when I saw that it was Olivia Wilde, it was like, that's great casting that Olivia Wilde is playing Gozer. Bit surprised you've just brought Gozer back, because... Well, I thought that she'd been, or the god Gozer, who had taken a female form, had been vanquished. But, okay. And then when it really, really, really played the <laughs> ending of Ghostbusters again, it was like, this seems lazy. Yeah, I read a quote from Jason Reitman from a number of years ago when he was actually asked about what, you know, would you write, would you direct Ghostbusters 3? And he basically just went, oh, I think I'd make a really boring Ghostbusters movie. And it's like, you kind of have a bit. Yeah, you know yourself very well. I suppose the big spoiler is that all the original Ghostbusters are back in this movie, including Harold Ramis. Yeah, I have mixed feelings. Well, no, I don't have mixed feelings about that. I have the feeling that I hope they 
got his permission before he died? I hope somebody asked him. If we do it, you're happy to come back as a ghost? I know what you mean, but I didn't think that it was distasteful to bring him back. No, I I think it was really sweetly done and they played it for like the emotional moment of the piece. But there's still a part of me that's just, he didn't sign up for this. But I think it's one of those things where the way that he was treated was so reverential because there was no voice in there either, which I thought was good because it's like, well, is there going to be a voice? Is someone going to do a Harold Ramos voice? And there wasn't. And I thought that was actually so the right decision to make. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it's likely that he didn't sign up for it. But you have to think that the Harold Ramos estate would have been very, very close in terms of how Harold Ramos's memory would have been treated and served in this new Ghostbusters film. And I think they would have been very involved in how that was done. And to be honest, I thought it was very, very respectful. If I die... Oh, you're coming you... back, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. If, if, I was like, if, if one of us dies, we're just going to keep the podcast going using f- footage from pre- using uh, recordings from previous episodes. We can do that. Well, you can do it with me because I often just get one thing that I'll say. That's what he thinks about horror films. That's what he thinks about action films. So you can do, easily do that with me. Um, and you have my permission to do that as well. <laughs> um, but I thought it was actually very, very respectful the way that they did it. And I did think I'm kind of watching magic happen here because it didn't look weird. It didn't look, yeah, it didn't even look like Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One where you can kind hmm. of see there's some CGI in there. This looked like he was actually there performing that particular role for the film. Of course, he wasn't because he died. I think it was it 2014 that he died. But I thought that was, I thought I am kind of watching magic here. Yeah, I have to admit it did move me to see him back there. And when they're all lined up together. I think, I think it's for me because the film opens with Egon's death. Hmm. One of the first shots of the film is what, like the Shandor mine, the sign, the sign saying that. Yeah. And at that point, my heart did sink a little bit. Right, it's, yeah, because you... Because, because I was like, oh no, I now know exactly what this is going to be. You know, he, he manages to get back to the farm and he sets off the, 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 the ghost trap. And then, you know, he takes a seat on the couch and the hands, you know, burst up through the arms of the couch. And it's like, oh no. Are we redoing just iconic moments from the original film with a bit of extra emotion thrown in because Harold Ramis has died? And there's an element of that. That opening is obviously an actor, it's not Harold Ramis. Because I thought that, I thought, okay, so you are going to lean into the mythology that was explored in the first movie. And then when the hands come out, it's like, okay, so you're going to do that as well. But then I thought, at that point, the film still had my trust because it's like, well, this is the very opening. And I think it's also like a cold open as well, unless I'm misremembering it. So it's like, we think this is a bit like a Bond thing. You give them what they expect in terms of a Bondian moment. So this is like a cold open to a Ghostbusters film. You give them what they expect in terms of a Ghostbusters film. But we've got a whole new plot to get into with all new characters. And yeah, then when it was obvious that it was going to keep on doing that. I mean, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man bit was like, this is just gremlins. This is when they're all in the gizmo stage, before they've eaten after midnight. They're just mucking around like gremlins. So now we're doing gremlins, but with Ghostbusters imagery. This whole thing seems to be just taking the original Ghostbusters and using it as like the foundation for a big wallow in 80s nostalgia that obviously pulls in a lot of Spielberg. But to your point, doesn't have any big jokes in it. Yeah, you're right when you say it's wry. It is wry. And, and there were some moments when I kind of chuckled. So the Phoebe character has a joke. Why can't you trust atoms? Because they make up everything. That made me laugh out loud. Um, <laughs> but I so remember seeing the original Ghostbusters at the cinema. 
it was just one of those great audience films. The audience just laughed and shrieked the whole way through. Everyone left on such a high at what they'd just seen. And the line when he says, like, you know, everything was going fine here until Dickless turned off the containment unit. And it's like, is this true? Yes, this is true. This man has no dick. (laughs) That just brought the house down. There's not really one memorable line of dialogue, at least that I can, you know, actually think of off the top of my head. Again, there's a lot of stranger things in there. There's even a couple of moments I thought I was thinking, oh, this feels more E.T. than it does Ghostbusters. Absolutely. And then there are other bits that are shot like the sections of Close Encounters with Melinda Dillon and her son before he gets abducted, like really, really closely shot to that sort of feel and look. And it's like, well, Ghostbusters wasn't Spielberg. Ghostbusters was SNL. And yes, you can do something different with it. Of course you can. But you're not doing anything different with it. You're just going back to another 80s source to glaze it with that instead of the original Ghostbusters. So, (laughs) I mean... There's so much nostalgia packed into that. Like, you know, even just a scene where you've got the um, Gibson character, the Paul Rudd teacher, showing the kids um, Cujo and then Chucky. Oh, yeah. He kind of, you know, brings a bit of charm to it. And then there's the bit that they find the jumpsuits in the locker. That's so Force Awakens. And then you've got um, Muncher, which is like the Slimer-like creature. It's basically Slimer in all but name. Actually, you know what? I remembered one joke that made me laugh. Go on where Ray talks about them basically getting evicted from the fire station because this guy brought up Tribeca. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Clearly meant to be De Niro. Well, yeah, because he said this actor... Yeah, this actor brought yeah. up Tribeca. That's right. That's the... <laughs> yeah. That did make me laugh, but I thought, that's an in-joke. <laughs> like, yeah, no yeah. one... Me and you are going to get that, but most of the people in the audience are not going to get that that's a reference to Robert De Niro. Yeah, but that did make me chuckle. Also, J.K. Simmons is in this film for, like, a single shot. That's what I mean. It's like, that's the thing about there is a longer version of this because it's like, okay, so we obviously had a flashback to him or something because I was amazed when I saw that it was J.K. Simmons and then even more amazed when he gets killed immediately. It's like, okay, there is a longer version of this somewhere and I would be interested in seeing it, but I don't think it's going to make this any better. The bit with the jumpsuits, I thought, well, they all fit them, but these were made for grown men. So <laughs> Finn Wolfhard is the only one that you could think, well, it would be loose on him, but he might be able to fit into it. But yeah, McKenna Grace is about is like four tw- foot 11. Yeah. <laughs> she's like a, like, a, like a 12-year-old girl. It's like... Yeah, she's... <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And just go back to that bit again when they're fighting the ghost down the main street of the town. It's like, I just so thought that was going to be the bit. I thought, yeah, you've, you've made it work. I completely buy that these kids are becoming Ghostbusters and it's really charming. And then it doesn't... Mm. And what do we think about the original Ghostbusters, the three surviving original Ghostbusters coming back? It was a little, just a little bit sad. It was underwhelming, wasn't it? I think probably Dan Aykroyd comes out the best out of it. I think he's the only one initially that kind of has a moment by himself when he's on the phone with Phoebe and he learns about um, Egon. Yeah. He actually gets an emotional beat, whereas Bill Murray is just, he's playing Venkman, but all of his dialogue is just riffing on stuff that he said previously, the last time they faced off against Goza. Yeah. And it's nice to see Ernie Hudson there, but they're not really given anything to do. They just have to turn up at the end and hold the guns. I thought that. And again, it was like The Force Awakens. That bit in The Force Awakens when they're on that forest planet, I can't remember what it's called, um, and someone calls the New Order, whatever they're called, like, you know, the baddies. Um, and you think, okay, right, so I know exactly how this is going to go because I've seen the trailers. They're going to arrive and capture all the goodies. But then we're going to get that bit where the X-Wing are doing the attack run over the lake to come and rescue them. 
it's so obvious how this is going to play out, but I'm so looking forward to it because this totally understands how to create the excitement and adventure of a Star Wars movie using all the Star Wars imagery. And that bit in The Force Awakens when Poe leads the attack run over the lake to rescue their friends is like, oh, this is just one of the finest moments of Star Wars or cinema. It's just perfect. And at the end of this, I thought it's all going really, really wrong for them and goes as not being contained in the farm that is the big trap. But we all know what's going to happen. There's going to be a bit when it looks like the day is lost and then we're going to hear one of the Ghostbusters say, why don't you pick on someone your own size or something? And the Ghostbusters are going to be there. And that pretty much happened. But it was really underwhelming. <laughs> it was like... And then... Oh! And then as soon as they turned up, I was like, and now we're, I think we're going to get Ghost Howard Ramis. I thought that. I didn't think that they'd lean into it as much as they did. I thought it was one of those things that would be kind of suggested. But actually, the way that it was done, I thought, just that scene when he's with her holding the proton fire, I thought, that's how you do this. That is really, really nice. And it does a lot of the heavy lifting that the script can't do in terms of healing the emotional break between Egon and his daughter. But there's still massive problems <laughs> with this script because it's just overplotted and it's just relying on our love of this actor and the character he played, to paper over that. And they just weren't given anything to do. The original Ghostbusters weren't given anything to do. And it seemed like they were basically just riffing on a, on some notes they'd been given because the dialogue wasn't particularly good and the jokes didn't really zing. And, and they replayed the bit about, are you a god? And Ray says yes. And it's like, but that should be sharper. It should be mm. a sharper moment. It, it just seemed all really, really throwaway. Ugh. Yeah. It's a shame. the rob sigh has become a new form of criticism and sometimes it just says everything it says everything that needs to be said there was more air in that sigh than there is in the entire film (laughs) it's not wrong what do we think of the mid-credit scene and the end credit scene (sighs) again it was nice it was nice seeing sigourney weaver that actually seemed like a scene where she and Bill Murray might have had a bit of fun. Yeah. And then, then obviously it gives um, Ernie Hudson a bit more to do and kind of suggests he's the kind of successful Ghostbuster outside of... Yeah, he's gone on to something else and, and has made himself a fortune, yeah. Yeah. And then you sort of see the, you see the red light flashing on the um, containment unit. But that's like, oh, so now you're just going to remake Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> well, that would be... Fascinating. I'd be more interested to see that than to see a remake of Ghostbusters 1. Because it's like, well, there's nowhere to go with a remake of Ghostbusters 1 because it just did it so well. A remake of Ghostbusters 2, it's like, well, there's some good ideas in Ghostbusters. The idea that everyone's bad energy. I mean, that'd be such a movie to do now, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So topical and such a relevant thing to do now that we live in a world where, like, everyone is anxious and that anxiety is coming out in terms of anger and there's something that's feeding off of that to make it worse and so that everyone can be like an army to bring about the end of the world through their anger and their anxiety. It's like, yeah, that works. I mean, not sure you could do it as a comedy now, but um, (laughs) I would be interested to see a retelling of that. But... Yeah, the idea to take it out of the city and put it into rural America is like, well, that's different, but... But it's only it's only different in terms of all the other movies that we've been referencing that this film reference, you know, that this film references other than the original Ghostbusters are all set in the country. Well, that's right. But when I saw the original Ghostbusters, at the time, it was just a massive movie. The scale of it was just absolutely massive. 
because that's the scale that we were used to seeing in a big blockbuster film. You watch Ghostbusters now, and even though the ghosts have taken over New York, it's actually a small film in terms of how much that's illustrated. And at the end, when they go into the hotel to do battle with Goza, it's about 100 people outside on the street, whereas it should be the entire city. It's one of those that now looks a bit smaller than it did back in 84 or 85 when I saw it. And I always thought if you made Ghostbusters now, you could do it on the scale that it seemed to be when I was a kid. So taking it out into rural America, it's like, okay, so you're not going to do that scale then, um, even though you could do because now we have the effects technology, you're going to do something different. But to your point, no, we're just going to do E.T. and Close Encounters. And it's like, oh, okay, so... mm. And there aren't many ghosts in this film either, I thought. For a film called Ghostbusters, it's quite light on ghosts. No, I think there are... There's... I mean, I mean, technically, Goza isn't really a ghost um, to be a pedant. No, they're a god. Yes, indeed. Um, and and the demon dogs aren't really ghosts. Mm. Um, Munchers a ghost, and the ghost of the uh, like the miner who appears in the cafe. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It is, isn't it? There's like it's a Ghostbusters movie without actually any actual ghost busting, which actually means that it is very very similar to a version of Ghostbusters that ITV showed in the early 90s at 6 o'clock on a Saturday night that had all the ghosts cut out. It was weird watching it every I'm, single I'm not going to lie. Part of me... Uh, presumably Slimer's in there. Slimer's got to be in there. You can't. Slimer's in there, but they did. But they cut all the scary stuff. So the bit at the beginning with the librarian, the bit when she shrieks was cut, the bit when Slimer is going, and like racing towards Venkman was cut... The zombie taxi driver was cut. Most of that was cut, that scene when all the ghosts are released from the containment unit. I'm not going to lie, I find that really funny. I wouldn't even be angry watching that because, like, you'd be annoyed if they just, like, okay, they've cut cut out the bit when the librarian transforms. Oh, that's a bit of a shame. It's a great effect. Oh, but okay, fine. And then you just discover that they've cut out all the ghosts. That's the point at which you're like, yeah, I'm here for this. I want to see, like... (laughs) It was it was weirdly fascinating to watch a version of Ghostbusters with no ghosts in it. And um, it's like, so are these guys just having a psychotic break? Well, I would love to watch it again because that didn't occur to me at the time. But it's like, there's a reading of that. Because I, th- I, I could be misremembering it, but I think it also cut out or shortened the bit when all the library cards are flying out of the drawers because that's actually quite a creepy moment. It was just one of those where they thought, this is the version for four-year-old kids that are on their own. So therefore, we're going to cut out everything. But I actually got complaints to ITV about how much was cut. There was uh, They had to address why they showed that version. I, I seem to remember on the Right to Reply show. That's up there with, um, and I, I think I've, met, I've told you about this before, about um, seeing Watchmen in Dubai. And every time Dr. Manhattan appears on the screen swinging dong, they've obviously got to cut it. But the problem is, Dr. Manhattan gives all the exposition in that film. <laughs> So it makes no sense. Why not just zoom in on him? It's like, reframe the shot. <laughs> because I, I just don't... I think the people who were charged with editing it, they were just told, no, you've uh, just cut it. If he's on screen, cut it. But he seems to have a lot of... Du- cut it. Lose the blue willy. I'm trying to think, was there anything else about Ghostbusters that I thought that... Uh... Yeah, to your point about the very end scene with Winston going back to the firehouse and there's a containment unit starts to glow red... That's the Ghost Core opening. That's the fact that they want this to be an ongoing franchise now. And it's like, well, I'll probably watch one more version of this with this cast. I think that um, it would be interesting to see what they could do with a better script. But underwhelming, I think. Mm. Shame. I mean, 
yeah, I'm way more interested to see a version of this that's set back in New York now. Because at yeah. least when that when you know, even if it wasn't good, at least you could say it's it's a New York movie. Yeah, the first two really are. The first one in particular is a great example of a New York movie. When I went to New York the first time, I was walking around Central Park. I just had Ghostbusters in my mind. Yeah, when I was first in New York, went to the uh, went to the library, the New York Library, and that was very cool. Yeah, walked past that and saw the lions. It is a great New York movie, that first film. So is there anything else to say about Ghostbusters Afterlife? I get why the film is what it is. I just wish it was something else. <laughs> That's a pretty good way to end it, yes. I completely agree with that. So our next episode, I think, will be a Christmas episode when we talk about Christmas movies. I've only got one thing to say to that, and that is humbug. <laughs> I thought it might be. <laughs> Rob hates Christmas and everything to do with it. Famously so. Famously if so. I could work my will, every idiot who goes around with Merry Christmas on his lips would boil with his own pudding and buried with a stick of holly through his heart. Is that from Ghostbusters 2? <laughs> yes, that's from Ghostbusters 2. I believe that's Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> Well, before we go, shall we plug the pluggables? Uh, yes. Um, would you like to go first, mate? If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. And you can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. And yeah, I think that's me done, isn't it? Yeah, oh, well, um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And uh, well, to cross the streams, uh-huh. we have another podcast. We do. That's great called Another Time McLeod, which is uh, essentially a, a breakdown of the movie Highlander. Not quite minute by minute, but um, yeah, scene by scene. And you can find that wherever you're listening to this. Uh, follow that pod on Twitter, at McLeod Time. And we actually have an email account for that one, um, which is who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Daniel. And thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Are you a god? No. Then... When someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! <laughs>